greatest problem in the Catholic Church today is comfort. Because we're too comfortable, uh, priests, bishops, cardinals, all of us, myself, Jesus can't work with that. He wow. just, he doesn't, Jesus had nowhere to rest his head. Jesus was the poor man of Nazareth. Jesus grew up poor. He lived poor. He was born in a manger. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab and the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and my guest today is Kevin Wells. He's an author of numerous books, but today we focus on his most recent book, Priest and Beggar, which is about a priest local to the D.C. area who has a cause up for beatification right now. The priest's name is Aloysius Schwartz, and he died not too long ago in the early 90s. And when you get to know his story, you'll see that he's kind of like a male version of Mother Teresa. He dedicated his life to serving the poor. Um, In particular, he founded homes for children in the Philippines, in Korea, and later in Mexico. And much like the missionaries of charity, he knew that in order to really serve the poor, you have to live like the poor. Um, And so just the, the radical renunciation that he he voluntarily went through is is such an inspiration um you know you could just really tell that he's an authentic uh and very holy man and i think it's so helpful in the church today because there seems to be this very unfortunate divide and maybe this is more so in the church in america but you kind of have um you know the champions of doctrinal orthodoxy on one side and the champions of uh, social justice and love of the poor on the other side. Um, and those are like the the left and right lungs of the church. And they're so beautifully harmonized in people like Alicia Schwartz or Mother Teresa. I'll tell you what, this interview was a kick in the pants for me. Um, I was reminded of not just how good I have it, but really of the fact that I have it kind of too good. Um, Father Al was like allergic to comfort. Um, and I feel like I'm addicted to comfort. And so it's just, it's good to be reminded of, of the fact that there's so much more I could be doing with my time and with my life if I weren't so attached to comfort, if I weren't so addicted to entertainment um, and, and just, you know, filling my life with all of these pleasurable things that, you know, don't even last an hour, much less an eternity. Um, and so, you know, it's good to get that wake up call. It's kind of like when you read the Sermon on the Mount and you realize like, oh, wait, being a Christian's a little bit more than like just being nice to people and uh, saying your prayers at night. Um, it's a real call to radical, uh, sacrificial love, um, even when it hurts. Um, and so, you know, Father Al's just an inspiration in that regard. And like Mother Teresa, he really is somebody who did it all with joy um, you know, this wasn't just like a, a white knuckling, like gritting and bearing kind of like, oh, well, you know, I've got to do this way because it's the right thing to do. Like he really did it with, you know, his whole heart. Um, and so, you know, I, I just I, I just asked for his his intercession um, to uh, help me shave off a little bit of uh, the fat around the edges, so to speak. Anyways, I, I hope you will. Check out Kevin's book, Priest and Beggar. It's it's a great read. He's a he's a fantastic writer. Um, 
I love reading biographies. I just like learning about people's lives. I find that they're so much more interesting than fiction because they're actually true and real. Um, and and the book was was definitely a page turner for me. And also encourage people to support the the sisters that are carrying out the work that Father Al began. Um, they don't have as much you know prominence in, in in the media as you know Mother Teresa and her sisters did, um, but they're doing you know no less um, incredible service. And so, if you are inspired, please donate to them or or pray for the success of their work. And now here's my conversation with Kevin Wells. Kevin Wells is a former Major League Baseball writer, award-winning journalist, and best-selling author of First, A Story of God's Grace When Life Falls Apart, The Priests We Need to Save the Church, and most recently, Priest and Beggar, The Heroic Life of Venerable Aloysius Schwartz. A freelance writer and an active speaker, he is also the president of the Monsignor Thomas Wells Society, which is dedicated to the promotion of strong priests and seminarians and the practice of the fullness of the Catholic faith. Kevin lives in Maryland with his wife and children. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. It's wonderful to be with you. It's, uh, I wish I was with you uh, live, but it, Zoom, will, Zoom will work, Mary Rose. Yes, yes. This is, um, you know, the grace of, I guess, living in the 21st century is that you're, you're, you're never too far from anybody to speak with them. No, is that a blessing or a curse? It's a little bit of both, right? Like you're always accessible, but at the same time, you're always accessible. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. You, you know, e- emails are murderous to my e- yeah. mind. I just get them all day long. I yeah. agree. I agree. If there was one, if there was one modern technology I could smash, it would probably be emails. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you. I, I clear them out every morning. It's just, it takes a good hour or two and it just it does. It does. Yeah. I know. I actually blocked that into my schedule. Like, okay, set a timer, 30 minutes, just emails go. And it doesn't, it doesn't like completely wipe them out, but at least it's like, you know, cleans up no, the clutter. It, <laughs> no, it's like a black, it's a, like a black mold. They just, they just replenishing. And, and the older you get Mary Rose, bad news, the more you get. So it's, <laughs> It doesn't lessen. Yeah, I know. I was I was a teacher um, before my current job, and so it was like not only like constant emails from the school, but then from parents, and then from students who email you just in the same way they text. You know, like no subject, like no greeting, just like hey, you know. Um, so I get probably slightly less emails now, but I also somehow have like more email addresses. I have like five email addresses now that for like my various jobs. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I got, I got the same problem, but we, we shouldn't, it's Thanksgiving. We, I we know. Should be getting, yeah, yeah. We shouldn't be complaining about, uh, we, uh, life is very good and I give it Thanksgiving is. to God for everything. It is. I mean, yeah, actually, you know, I want to get into your, your book, uh, about father Aloysius, but you know, the, the sufferings of this, this email are, are nothing compared to the things that he, he, um, witnessed and encountered. I'm with you. So how did you first become acquainted with him and his story? Well, in 2019, um, I had written a book called The Priest We Need to Save the Church, as you had sort of talked about in the bio, and it really got out there, and um, uh, which which surprised me. It was, a, it was a great surprise, but it got out there. And, and uh, I guess uh, three or four months after its release, a married couple 
came up to me at a function and they said, Kevin, we know who the priest we need to save the church is. And his name is Venerable Aloysius Schwartz. And we would like you to write his biography. And I had no desire to write <laughs> this priest's biography just because, you know, I, I had heard of him because he's from Washington, but I just wasn't in the mood. I had never written a biography and, and I really, I didn't, didn't know much. I, I, he just didn't, well, let's put it this way. I, the last thing I wanted to do was write a biography on yeah. Venerable Alice. <laughs> and I told them as much mm. and they, and they, um, before they left, they handed me some, uh, reading material on this man and, um, got home, forgot about it, shoved it off into my desk. And, um, about a month went by and, I picked it back up and I started to read what they had given me. And I tell you what, Mary Rose, I had spent many months prior to writing the priests we need studying the lives of the great priest saints, John Vianney, Bosco, Neary, Damon, the leper, John Newman, um, all the greats, all the paragons. And what I had read about this father, Al, this venerable Al Schwartz, I had not read before. Mm. And um, I called them up and I said, Hey, you know what? I, I'm, uh, I have, I have great interest now. So then I called, um, my really, who's become my favorite publisher, Ignatius press. And I, and I proposed the idea of biography to the president, father Joseph Fessio and, and, um, you know, nobody had ever heard of him yeah. because he prayed not to be known. Yeah. And, and once I explained who he was and what he did, the in, incomprehensible amount of, um, uh, of transformative things he did he had accomplished for the world he said yeah this guy's biography needs to be written so that's that's how i really came to know father al wow so the couple that approached you what was their connection to him it's a great question so um their names were uh, tom and glory sullivan and way back in the i guess it was the early 80s they had read an article in the, there used to be a, uh, an afternoon paper called the Washington Star. And there was a front page story on Father Al, this, this Washingtonian born in the Great Depression who was over in Korea and the Philippines and, and changing the Far East. He had just been nominated for what's called, well, he was nominated twice for the Nobel Peace Prize. He, he had won what's called the Magasay Award, which is essentially the the Nobel Peace Prize on the on the Far East, and yeah. he was friends with Mother Teresa. But the story just detailed how he was changing the world. So uh, Tom and Glory started to uh, become pretty large benefactors to his uh, who his mission. Back then, it was called uh, Asian Relief. So Father Al became friendly with the Sullivans, and whenever he came back to the United States from the Far East, he would try and stop by and visit them. So. Um, they just became very close with Father Al. And for years after he died, way too young in yeah. 1992, um, they wanted the world to know about this paragon. And, and I don't blame them because what he accomplished, I believe, had never been accomplished in the history of the church, really in the history of the world. Yeah, that, that actually is something that struck me as I was reading the biography because I mean, everyone's familiar with Mother Teresa, who you mentioned, um, and we know about the various like homes for the dying and, and orphanages that she she set up. But like the facilities that Father Al established, I mean, they were housing 
four or 5,000 kids, you know, these massive complexes. You just think, like, the thing that I found most amazing was was even just the amount of, uh, I don't know, financial power that would have to be behind that to, to construct these really amazing complexes. Um, I mean, you, I think when you compare that to a lot of the homes, and again, of course, not to throw shade on Mother Teresa, but, you know, a lot of her homes were, were very small scale, um, you know, very humble operations. And, and these were, I mean, he, he, he made them state of the art, essentially. If, so Father Al, I'm glad you brought up Mother Teresa. So Father Al, Mother Teresa, they knew each other uh, well, and they really esteemed each other's work because they were on that side of the world. But they were very, they were very similar, but they were very um, unlike. Uh, they were always in the grind, obviously, in the trench with the poor. But where Mother Teresa and the missionaries of charity would allow the sick or dying person, the elderly, to die with dignity, mm-hmm. um, Father Al his thought was i will make sure they're never there mm. so for, so he his idea was to get them on the front end so mother teresa was on the back end father al was on the front end when they were 10 11 12 years old so he was going to catechize educate and build them up so not only would they never be poor but they could help catechize the world so so um so really that's what he did and and he and and when you bring in so where I, no one wants to knock Mother Teresa, right. but when you bring in young kids and you say, for five years, I will house you, I will teach you, I will educate you, I will take care of you, you know, health benefits, whatever, it costs a lot of money because you have to hire teachers, doctors, insurance clauses, you have to build buildings. So he had to raise a lot of money to make this happen. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I know people were pouring in money to Mother Teresa too, and I think she just continue to found like new operations around the world. Um, so in, in that sense, I guess she was more, you know, I don't want to use the word successful, but she was, she was more widespread, I think in her, in her lifespan, he was in Korea, Philippines, and then Mexico, right. Before he died. Yeah. He, he died way too early. He yeah. died when he was 62 years old. Yeah. Um, he died from Lou Gehrig's disease. He, he should still be alive now. I mean, this guy was around when Michael Jordan was playing basketball, when Bill Clinton was right. in office. So <laughs> he, I, I suspect if he did not die, because his after he died, the Sisters of Mary, the order that he founded, they continued it. They they headed down to Brazil, uh, yeah. where there's boys towns and girls towns, um, Honduras, Guatemala. Now they're in Tanzania. I suspect that if Father Al did not die far too early that there would be boys towns and girls towns all over the world. So even today, as we speak, Mary Rose, there's 21,000 children in these boys towns and girls towns right now today um, being uh, taken care of by these sisters of Mary. There's over 400 sisters of Mary and there's one chaplain, Father Dan Leary, Washington's own crazy priest, Father Dan Leary. (laughs) So, so yeah, he, so he, he was slowed down by death. I mean, he was taken out. By Lou Gehrig's disease. Right. Yeah. In your um, research for the book, did you get to visit any of the homes, the girls' towns and boys' towns he established? I did. I, I, um, when COVID hit, I, uh, right when COVID hit was, was when I signed the contract and I had to do a lot of research. So I, somehow I got down to Chalco, Chalco, Mexico, where there's 3,300 girls. And I spent three weeks there. Um, in the spring of 2020 
okay. uh, where I interviewed sisters that took care of him as he was dying. Wow. Um, sisters that worked alongside of him in the Philippines and Korea. Uh, um, and really, I just sort of immersed myself in his life. I read, I read, uh, I would say hundreds, many hundreds of pages of his writings, of his homilies, of some of the books that he, he had written. And I really, uh, that's when I became really, I, I fell in love with this, this man who, who offered his life as a slave to Mary. Um, he consecrated everything to Mary. And, and I understand, I understood that very few people, I, I, I would, I venture to say very few people in the history of the world, uh, lived as raw, lived as austere, lived as poor as a priesthood. He wanted to be crucified to the cross. He, his, his whole idea was, is, um, I want to be Jesus, the starved man on the cross in my priesthood. I want to suffer to serve. And and boy, did he do that. Yeah, I, I was astonished like when he first got to Korea and they wanted to house him in the rectory, you know, as you would put a priest. And he was like, no, no, I will, you know, take a little hut amongst the people. And and just describing like the conditions of, you know, just pure squalor. Um, but I, But I thought it was beautiful, too, because... I mean, it kind of reminds me of like what Pope Francis says about like, a, you know, a shepherd smelling like the sheep. It's like, you know, how can you pastor people who are in abject poverty from your, you know, cozy little, you know, estate or whatever? It's like, you know, I mean, I mean, not not that the people would necessarily even look down on them for that. I think he tried to keep it kind of secret because they wouldn't, um, you know, they would almost not tolerate that. Isn't that right? Yeah. So Mary Rose, this, for your listeners, for your for your podcast listeners, and by the way, are we just talking, or is this? Uh, they, can they see you and me too? Um. Well, it's, we're not live right now. Well, this will okay. come out later, but it do, it doesn't matter to me either way. I'm just okay. I, I didn't notice the <laughs> viewers or listeners. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so I'll say this. Um, here's where Father Al set himself apart. I imagine from the great majority of. Um, other missionary priests. He he was on the rise in the 1950s with the Marianolers in formation. He was a, he was probably four years from becoming a priest, a missionary priest. And the Marianolers were the king of the hill mm-hmm. worldwide as missionary priests. And one day he went up to the rector and he said, "I don't want you." And he's like, "What are you talking about? You know, you're 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 one of our prized." future priest, your, your editor of the, of the Mary Knoll newspaper, your, your vice president of your class. What he said, well, what I've noticed when I serve in the summers is when I go on mission trips is when the sun sets and the moon begins to rise that your Mary Knollers return to rectories or homes where there's televisions and radios and there's, there's three square meals and there's suites and there's air conditioning and there's heat and, and they're comfortable. And until the Marinolers cross the threshold of poverty and live with the poor and embrace the violence of poverty, the poor will never trust them. Mm. So um, I don't, I don't want the Marinolers. And he became the first Marinoler in the history, American Marinoler in the history of formation to leave them. Oh, um, wow! <laughs> yeah, and he, and he, and he found what he was looking for in Belgium. Um, with a, an obscure order of missionaries called the Samists. And the Samists were poor men, were going to be poor men priests to live with the poor um, uh, in the poorest countries of the world. And he said, bingo, that's exactly what I want. 
Yeah. Well, and it seemed like he was really attracted to that from a young age because I remember him writing about um, going to visit his aunt who was a, a religious sister and and even like her convent life, he he was sort of turned off by. And I mean, it didn't even sound all that like extravagant, you know? I mean, it was like they were sleeping on like king size beds or anything, but he just, I don't know, he was so um, reactive against that. He grew up poor. He grew up in the depression with a father that had a sixth grade education um, on the wrong side of the track. So he understood poverty. Mm-hmm. And and you're right, Mary Rose, um, he he was very uncommon, even as a even as like a 12 year old boy, when he saw Sister Malfreda, his aunt, uh, who, who <laughs> you know, this is kind of crazy. So she she was living with um, other nuns in D.C. serving uh, the blacks who at that point in time were looked at second class citizens in society. Right. And, and here's Sister Malfreda, who taught who taught uh, who was actually the principal of the school who lived among the blacks. But she returned to her convent at night and the convent was pretty comfortable. I mean, there was always suites laying around and, yeah. <laughs> you know, there were comfortable couches and father Al in his diaries, even as a little boy. Um, so sister Malfreda never knew this, but he wrote um, part of what, part of what my aunt's sister does is the word he used was phony. Mm. And, and even then he said, until the community in Southeast Washington saw the sisters living poor, then then the community would never really accept them. So he was very, very, very um almost like a, a desert father. He had yeah. great wisdom, great love for the poor. He saw things with unique, a unique set of eyes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's so important because in today, like, you know, especially in the political climate, like you'll you'll have a lot of people who will kind of have a lot of talk about like the poor we need to serve the poor we need to help the poor and they they kind of say all these like nice things from their like high you know high lifestyles um and and even some of the some of the bishops you know will talk a lot about the poor but then they go home to their million dollar you know condo or whatever and it's like um I, I mean you know that's one of the things I actually do like about Pope Francis is the way that he he does talk about the poor but he also seems to want to live kind of a, a simple life, you know, that it, it doesn't seem, um, I mean, I, I know there's plenty of criticisms to be made about him, but it but doesn't seem to me phony or two-faced when he, like, wants to care for the poor, but also, like, in his own life. Like, I remember reading once he was, like, going on a trip and he had, like, three things in his suitcase, and it's, like, you know, good. <laughs> like, he's, he's walking the walk and talking the talk. Yeah. So I'll, I'll address a few things you said there. So as far as the bishops, American bishops or bishops worldwide, until they begin to amputate their comfort, yeah. annihilate their chauffeurs, their cachet, <laughs> their chefs, yeah. um, our church will yeah. continue to crumble. Their chefs, like that's a- what drives me crazy. <laughs> like, how do you all have personal chefs, you know? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's staggering. It's stunning to the mind. I, I know that, I know that Peter and James and John and those guys, they didn't have chefs. <laughs> so, so I, but until they really shave off yeah. Um, I would say two thirds to three quarters of their comfort. The church, the Catholic church today, I believe will continue to crumble. I, mm-hmm. I think the greatest problem, you know, I'm on my little microscopic soapbox here. Yeah. <laughs> the greatest problem in the Catholic church today is comfort mm-hmm. because we're too comfortable. Uh, priests, bishops, cardinals, all of us, myself, yeah. um, 
were just Jesus can't work with that. He wow. just he doesn't. Jesus had nowhere to rest his head. Mm. Jesus was the poor man of Nazareth. Jesus grew up poor. He lived poor. He was born in a manger. So, so, so that's what I'll say as far as Pope Francis. Um, yeah, I I do wish that he would look at the state of the Catholic Church and see the poverty within it. Mm. So it, it's okay that he would have three pair of clothings in a suitcase, but I, I wish more in a supernatural way. Um, although he loves the immigrants and, and we do too, um, he should also see that the church is very poor now and 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 sort of bring to 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 you and I and to, and to other Catholics who are suffering today an idea of how to to really help supernaturally help the starving Catholic laity um, to 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 understand how do we come back to a place of grace? How do we help our families? How do we help society, our neighbors, our sort of our, our church that's bleeding out its members after the pandemic or whatever? So there's great poverty, I think, now more in the church. Obviously, there's poverty everywhere. Um, but I think there's a great poverty within the church itself just because we're bleeding out. Right. What do you, what do you attribute that to? Like, why do you think the church is bleeding out members? I, I, I think we're too comfortable. Mm. I think that um, teenagers, college age kids and post-college kids, they see the church for what it is. A lot of it is hypocritical. So we can talk about feeding the poor and helping the immigrant. But but when the, um, let's just say the catechesis at the parish is, th- is, is thin, yeah. or let's say the um, the high school youth ministry is, is just sort of social justice um, geared or oriented, or, or it's just there's no true prophetic voice from behind the ambo at Sunday mass, or maybe confessions only offered 45 minutes on Saturday. Yes, you know, <laughs> that is I, a crime. I, yeah, and I think, but I, I do think Catholics see this for what it is. Yeah. It's a facade right. until the priest or pastor or bishop wants to offer confessions every day before or after daily mass, mm. until they live in a poorer dimension. Um, until we see that these folks want to live like Jesus Christ in persona Christi, well, then, then I think the laity is are gonna are, are just gonna bleed off. And I'll say this last thing, and I'll and I'll kind of quiet down here, Mary Rose, is is I believe that the Catholic Church, um, for many 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 years, we're gonna look back to how it handled the pandemic in 2020 uh, in March, and it will feel great shame. Yeah. Um, they did, they handled it so poorly. And I believe that generations, tens of thousands of generations of strong Catholic families died in 2002 and 2021, um, because the sacraments were closed down because church doors were locked and, and when, and dispensation, so-called dispensation ended and Bishop said, come on back. Well, millions said, uh-uh, nope. We're not because you always told us the Eucharist was a source and summit and an absolution in the confessional box meant everything mm. and that the sacraments were the foundation of, of who we were as Catholics. And for you to lock the doors at the first blush of maybe catching COVID, not coming back. So so I, I, I think outside of the finger of God, we've really got a long way to go. We can. I mean, obviously, we can we can make it happen, but we're we're going to suffer for a while longer. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it actually kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier about comfort is that, uh, you know, it seemed like now not I mean, there were a lot of priests who were very upset that they couldn't offer mass and and some priests were wonderful just 
being very creative, you know, offering confession outside or doing what they could within the parameters. But I think, yeah, there was a lot of, you know, people who, who you know, maybe bishops more so who said, eh, well, you know, let's just take a little breather here. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, the, the, to me, like the greatest tragedy too was just the fact that so many people died alone without the sacraments, you know, I mean, bingo. bingo. Yeah. Bingo. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's, no, it's, 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 you know, I, I don't want to say that any of us can live without the sacraments, but at the very least to, di to, to die without the sacraments. Um, it, it, it was, you know, staggering to the mind, stunning yeah. to the mind that uh, bishops in their diocese wouldn't have fought tooth and nail to make sure that the elderly yeah. or even folks in hospitals, whatever, or in, or in uh, retirement communities, um, it, I, I don't care, put on put on an astronaut suit, whatever, right. just, just <laughs> get get the priest in there to give them comfort. Um, but, but they, it, it's just seemed there was no skin in the game. There was no real teeth to it. So, yeah, I don't, so, so Mary Rose, I, I'm from a family of priests. I have, I have dozens of priest friends. I'm God. Mm. Thank, thank you, God. So, yeah, I don't blame priests, the priests that were trying to have outdoor confessions and all that. I, I know a lot of them. I know priests that celebrated mass. I'll be candid now off the grid when they were told not to, I'm just going to say it. Yeah. Um, no, I, I speak, I speak specifically about bishops right now. Mm. The fact yeah. that bishops didn't fight harder to keep their parishes open, but but yeah, I, yeah, it just it was a very dark time in Catholic history. Yeah, well, I mean, even to like reading this this book and hearing about the opposition that Father Al faced from from bishops, you know, this is not really a new problem, and, and it was actually kind of sad to me, like the way um, I, I can't remember if it was the bishop or archbishop uh, archbishop Sin is that his name. Cardinal yes, Sin. Cardinal Sin. Yeah, I mean, at the beginning, he seemed like this this great like friend of Father Al, and and you know they were going to be real like coworkers, and then he sort of turned on him, and you know that was just a shock. Oh, they yeah, that okay? So that was Bishop Choi. So oh, Cardinal okay, okay. Sin was in the Philippines. No, it's okay. So so Bishop Choi, you're right. You're right. They were like best buddies. He came to America to help raise money with Car yeah. Father Al. But but yeah, when Fa so so here's the way it works, Mary Rose. Um, Father Al started Asian Relief for the poor, for the poorest of the poor. And when hundreds of thousands of dollars from Americans, generous Americans, started to come in in the early 1960s, and this is post-war Korea, um, Bishop, the Bishop of Korea at that time, Father Al's friend, started to dip into Father Al's funds and use it for building the money for building projects. Mm -hmm or to give to a relative who was a priest, et cetera, et cetera. And Father Al said, you're done, you're cut off. And so, so that's when sort of the war began. So the bishop tried to get him thrown out of the country. Uh, the, the bishop mocked him and, and, and really calumniated him to, to fellow priests in Korea. But, but with Father Al, as he was attacked by him, American bishops, as he was attacked by Korean priests, a gang, you know, a mafia kingpin tried to murder him many yeah, times. Yeah. A gang of a gang of lepers used to come after him. I yeah. mean, but he could not be stopped because he was bold and he knew everything he did was under the protection of Mary yeah. because he had given his whole life over to Mary and he could not be stopped. Yeah. No, I mean, I love that. I love his tenacity because, you know, like like we were mentioning earlier, there there's something in him from a very young age that he was just absolutely, you know, 
un, like totally resolved about what he wanted to do, that he wanted to serve the poor at the, the most um, austere level. And I mean, I think just an ordinary person, like when you have all that pushback, you kind of think like, oh, well, maybe am I doing something wrong? Maybe I should change. Like, you know, maybe my this is not what God wants me to do. And, and just the fact that he was able to push through all of that, you know, all that opposition from from church leaders, like must have been a real like supernatural grace. Well, he came out of the birth canal very bold and very strong, very holy, very holy. And he had a ferocious love for the poor. And if he sensed that anyone was going to come after the dignity of the poor or or try and take away from what he was trying to bring them, boy, did he get hot. And um, uh, he he just had a heart for the poor uh, because because Jesus was poor. He wanted to be he wanted to serve as Jesus did. Uh, for the poor. So, so um, Mary Rose, there was a streak in him. Um, I, I, I believe, you know, he, you know, in researching his life and researching, you know, how he lived his 62 years, it kicked me in the teeth yeah. because he was so powerful. He, he backed down from nobody. He feared nobody. The only thing he feared was sin. I don't even think he feared God. He just feared <laughs> sinning. Yeah. So, 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 um, but, but I, but I, but I kept thinking, how does he do this? How does he live in a shack for five years? How does he beat back American bishops? How does he get on a plane to, to confront the Pope? You know, how does he do this? Well, because Mary told him to go to the worst places. Mary told him to serve the poorest of the poor. So he was never going to stop working on behalf of Mary. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the story that you, um, included just about his devotion to like the virgin of the poor, like this, this like French devotion I'd never heard of. And like this little kind of miracle, um, can you share a little bit about that for those who haven't read the book yet? Yeah. Um, so when he went to Belgium to, to finish up his studies, uh, to become a priest in the mid fifties, he had heard about this obscure apparition site, an approved apparition site in the Northwest corner of Belgium called Bano. It's a little podunk village, about 200 people, where in 1933, Mary appeared to a little peasant girl named Mariette Becco. Um, and in a series of eight apparitions, I think there was a total of only 78 words mentioned by Mary during these eight apparitions. Um, Father Al fell madly in love with this this apparition because of what Mary essentially said to Mariette. It was the first time in the history of uh, Marian apparitions where Mary revealed herself with the poor. She said, I am Mariette. I am the virgin of the poor. I come to bring relief to the suffering. And, and it was really the third apparition that really pierced father Al. And it was on this night. It was in January. It was a very cold night. And, and, um, uh, and Our Lady had had sort of coaxed Mariette out of the house, and um, there was a formerly sort of unseen little brook, water, and Mary had encouraged Mariette to plunge her hands in the cold water. You know, it's kind of a mean thing for Mary to do, right? Yeah. Kind of a <laughs> kind of a kind of a nasty thing for Our Lady right. to do. But 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 Father Al saw in that uh, third apparition that it made perfect sense because Mary was asking Mariette 
to understand or feel the humiliations of her son on the cross. And it was a continuation of Fatima, where um, unless folks uh, were really, in a certain sense, making penances or mortifying their body for the poor sinners that nobody was praying for, then, then the work of God would always be somewhat thin. There had to be a cost to uh, his service. Uh, there had to be a pain, a, a violence, I should say, a violence to his priesthood. Um, he would have to suffer as Jesus did on the cross if he was going to serve uh, Mary well. So that's when he said, really, that was around the time where he said, um, you know, Mary, um, I, I want to serve you for the rest of my life. And I choose to be Jesus, the starved man on the cross. I want to I want to meet people as your son meant people. Your son suffered and I want to suffer, too. Yeah. Have you ever read um, Fulton Sheen's autobiography? I've read a lot of his books. Okay. I, I, uh, Treasure um, and I think it's called Treasure and Clay. Uh, oh, but that's, yeah, that was, um, oh my gosh. I listened to that on audio book okay. about 10 years ago. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it, it reminded me a lot of reading Father Al's because, um, I think he has a section in there, um, about the priesthood called priesthood victim. And that was like a huge theme in his priesthood that I'd never honestly heard anyone talk about before I read Fulton Sheen, where it's like the priest is as much the priest as he is the, the offering or, or the victim. Um, and, and that would seem to be a huge theme in Father Al's priesthood especially you know as he was diagnosed with ALS and he really viewed it as a gift like a gift to 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 offer back to God oh Mary Rose I'm so, you're, you're my new friend I'm so glad you brought <laughs> up Fulton Sheen and victimhood you know yeah. I I just I was in um Cleveland a few days ago speaking to about 60 seminarians mm -hmm. and I brought Fulton Sheen's book uh, the priest is not his own. It's about the priesthood. And I mentioned in chapter seven, I think, was on the victimhood of the priest. And and Fulton Sheen says, unless unless the people see the scarred hands, the bloodied hands of you as a priest, you know, they'll never trust you as the victim. So, yeah, you're exactly right. Thank you for connecting uh, Fulton Sheen to Father Al. Father Al understood that he needed to present himself as the slaughtered lamb as the victim willing to die, um, it's really to save souls. That That's all Father Al wanted to do, is he wanted to present himself as a victim. Yeah, and, and Fulton Sheen, he talked about how, um, I think he started off his life of Christ with this, where, where he said the Antichrist will be like Jesus without the wounds, like it's Christ without the cross. And he said, that's how you'll know, that's how you'll be able to identify the Antichrist. He said he'll be this um, great humanitarian, um, you know, this seemingly benevolent figure, but he will have no wounds. You're pulling out all the great quotes. <laughs> I remember that quote as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah. The, it's like the phantom Jesus, you know, yeah. there's there's, yeah, there's no cuts, there's no scabs. Which again, you know, I think clean. is a lot of bishops. I think a lot of them, yeah, I mean, gosh, like talk about Cardinal McCarrick. I mean, he was always um, collecting money to give out. Um, you know, he seemed to be this great humanitarian kind of figure. And that's why he had so many connections with wealthy people. And then, I mean, you know, not only was he not a, a generous person, but far, far worse. We don't even need to go into to yeah. McCarrick. We don't we, we could just talk about the modern day bishop who who's in the chancery today. We, we are undergoing civilizational collapse today in the world. Our world is insane. 
um, what we're doing to young children that want to change their gender, uh, marriage, um, shacking up. I mean, all across the board, God's natural laws are falling like dominoes. And because I would argue, because bishops are too comfortable, mm. they've bent their knee to the world. They've genuflected to the world because it's just too hard to address the third rail moral topics. The, you know, the, the sins that cry out for, for vengeance, they won't touch. So as they remain silent in their comfort with sort of the verbal straitjacket, the contraception of their prophetic tongue, we will continue to undergo collapse. So yeah, I, I um, so, so the opposite of that is Father Al. Father Al, he, I could tell you so many stories, but we yeah. don't have time on this podcast, yeah. but Father Al wasn't putting up with it. Right. Uh, if he saw something that was immoral or something that was uh, not right in the church or, or he spoke his mind instantly, he was a bold man. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it, and it kind of got him in trouble in the seminary a little bit too. Right. Oh, he got in trouble all the time because, <laughs> because he knew the gospel truth. He, right. the blazing furnace of the gospel lived in his heart yeah. and it could not be constrained. And it didn't matter if it was his seminary rector or his bishop or American bishops. It did not matter. He was going to expose the gospel, which he studied. So he he loved the saints. You couldn't put a finger on him. So he loved John Bosco because Bosco saw the potentiality in the troubled child. He loved Mother Teresa because Mother Teresa was in the gutter. He loved like St. Francis of Assisi because Assisi kissed the leper and lived poor. Um, he, he, and he loved Damien the leper because he lived amongst the lepers and, but, but the one he loved the most, and maybe this is why he was so bold was Therese of Lisieux. So this sweet, kind, quiet saint lived like an icon in him because he knew that she wanted to offer every moment of her life to Christ. And that's all father I wanted to do. So if somebody was going to come out come at him and and uh, was saying something derogatory about the church or the poor or taking money. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're going to be like Teresa Lasso and you say, I'm going to offer every single thing to Mary or to Christ, you you you, you can't, you don't have time to put up with anything. You, you need to respond right. instantly. And because everything he did was based in the gospel, if Mary said it, he did it. If the gospel sort of preached it, he preached it. And if the saints went around and did it, then he did it. So for him, it was gospel, saints, Mary. Gospel, saints, Mary. It was like a kaleidoscope. You can make it that simple. Gospel, saints, yeah. Mary. That's how he lived his life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of reminds me of like Jesus cleansing the temple. You know, we, we, we don't always know what to make of that story, but I think it's helpful to like see the anger through Jesus' eyes like as this love for the poor, like the poor are being extorted just so that they can worship God and, and obey the law. And, you know, how, how often do we, um, you know, have these things that look nice, but we're just, you know, stealing from the poor in a sense. And I, I think actually to bring it back to the version of the poor, wasn't one of the aspects of the apparition about people working on Sundays. Oh yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that was, <laughs> go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, go I was going to say like, you know, when we talk about like, you know, not having people work on Sundays, 
that's kind of a luxury of the wealthy, I think, right now. I mean, if you're if you're poor, if you work at a grocery store, if you work at a gas station, if you work at a like you know in retail, like you're not a wealthy person, and you're the one that has to work on the Sundays. It's not the big corporate. I mean, I'm sure there are actually probably corporate people who just work you know seven days a week, but for the most part, you know, it's it's the the poor who have to bear that burden. You're you're exactly right. Um, I'm. I'm, I'm, you're the first person in all these interviews on Father Al that brought that up. But yeah, he, the poor do bear the burden. Uh, the rich don't. You know, f- with Father Al, there was no shortcuts to anything. He, 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 he asked his sisters, he told his sisters, the way we serve is to have a constant crown of thorns because the poor have been through too much. The poor have suffered, uh, you know, whether they've been, they've escaped human trafficking or whether they were abused in the worst way that a, a young girl can be abused by a man or et cetera, et cetera. He said, we must die to ourselves. Uh, so they, so th- we die, they live, we die, they live. So, so the work became all the harder because he knew how, how much they had suffered and how much they needed to their wounds to be plucked out from them. And that takes some time to get the wounds, all the haunting memories from, from uh, the life of someone who's suffered, especially someone who suffered the violence of poverty. Yeah. So after studying his life and, and, and writing about him, did he like convict you to personally change things about your own life? Yeah. Well, yeah. Like I said, he kicked me in the teeth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was, it, it, he, 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 um, he'll humiliate you. Yeah. Um, I, um, so yeah. So, so what he did mostly for me, so you think about poverty, right? You always think about poverty. Uh, and how he addressed it, and really how he changed the world. So over 175,000 children have gone through these boys' towns and girls' towns, et cetera. He was always going after the lepers, the 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 TB patients, et cetera, et cetera. But, but how he changed me was um, he knew that until he had turned his life over to prayer, intense prayer. He prayed three hours every day, at least three hours every day, at least he couldn't do the work. Mm -hmm. So, so I realized, well, I can talk a big game about, you know, my tithe or maybe going to the soup kitchen or helping this ministry, this Christmas. But until I spend time in silence and meditation or in front of the blessed sacrament with Christ, that I'm not much. Mm -hmm. So, so I, so I really increased, I I think, I think I've, I've intensified my prayer life um, and, and like with father out through that prayer, through reading scripture, through trying to be a saint, reading the lives of saints, then, uh, as a consequence, I think I've, I've been able to see the poor with clearer eyes. He always saw the poor with clear eyes. So, um, I, I think maybe that's what's happened with me. I, I think I prayed a little more, a little more with father out my mind. So I'm seeing the poor a little, a little more clearly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he definitely also just convicts me of like, trying to figure out like what what my life should look like I mean you know I don't think like people look like I'm a campus minister it's not you know a six-figure job but at the same time I have more than everything I could need you know in terms of physical comforts and and I struggle with this myself I'm like well you know it's like I like to shop like you know well clothes are pretty cheap these days (laughs) like how many pairs of shoes do I really need you know and it's it's just it, it's it's a challenge, I think, to, you know, I think some people have a certain vocation, obviously, to to radically gift themselves to the poor. But, you know, for the for the, like the lay person who wants to like have a family and kind of be in the world it, that they were born into, like, 
what what do you think a life of like how much should we embrace poverty you know if if our paycheck is decent like what should how much should we embrace poverty in spite of that well i think what father al would would tell you mary rose is he would say okay so mary rose you work as a uh campus minister um he'd say here's what i want you to do here's what i want you to consider look at your life and he would say the same thing to me look at your life where you're too fat and comfortable and lazy where you're too soft yeah um and start attacking that start annihilating that so you realize well i spend too much time on social media Mm -hmm. father i would say crush it Mm -hmm. make a plan and crush it so i spend too much time um watching cooking shows crush (laughs) it so so what he would say is take like get a piece of paper out put these things down that you're living where you're living fat where you're living soft and begin to amputate them and what he would say is uh you'll notice that you have an additional four to five hours a day so with those four to five hours a day do the best you can to offer yourself to your spouse or to the students that you work with or to those around you give it to christ as i gave my priesthood to mary he would say you take those five hours um, where you've sort of diminished your softness and give it up to God. So, so he does, he doesn't just say, give me money, give me money, give me money. Right. Um, although, although he does believe in, in the tithe, yeah. um, he, he would say, well, no, become poor yourself. You know, when you become poor yourself, you become more like Christ. So he would say it with those hours of the day, crunch those hours of the day that you're sort of wasting and give those to God. Yeah. Which like, I don't know if you, if you have a, do you have like a smartphone? Like, I mean, you probably do. You're like a normal person, but like you ever go and check like the screen time. That's like probably the biggest conviction is when you go, you, you pull up the screen time. And you're like, oh wow, cumulatively five hours I've spent on my phone today. And, and you don't think you've been sitting there for five hours, but just half an hour here, 20 minutes there, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, wow. I have a lot more time than I think I do. <laughs> I, I'm with you, man. It's, it, it really, I am. It's, it's uh, it's the scourge of society, and I, and I I believe what you just said is um, it, it's probably in my opinion probably the greatest addiction in the world today, more than pornography, fentanyl, alcohol, all that stuff. Yeah, shopping for shoes. I think <laughs> it's the time that we waste on social media. Now I'm that's just me, but if I'm if I'm uh, if I'm like a pig with my snout and the trowel and the trowels, my, my, my uh, cell phone, then shame on me. I'm just a, I'm just a hog. So, so back to the original point, father, I would say shame on you, cut it out, get it out of your life. Um, And that's any, any, and he would say like six months later, when you look at your cell phone, you see, man, I was only on for 16 minutes. He'd say, good on you. You're living poor. You're living with Christ. Yeah. I like that. And and it, and it's true. Uh, you know, you talked about just your prayer life helping you to be able to see the poor more clearly. I mean, you know, how often is our gaze directed at this, you know, little, you know, three by five box? <laughs> it, I mean, it's 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 something we'll have to answer for. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah, man, I'm I'm you know I'm scared to death. You know, there's no shortcuts. I know it all becomes revealed one day. I know everything that's hidden will be made known. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Although, although social media is pretty good at revealing all of the hidden things, you know, but not, oh, all, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not always for the best reasons. Time goes on. Yeah, absolutely. So were any of um, Father Al's relatives 
still living that you were able to meet? Yeah, very sadly. So my one of my, uh, I, I guess I would call him the greatest source of the early years was his brother, Lou Schwartz. So Lou, Lou was 90 and I would visit him in his home in Kensington. Um, and he would tell me, and it was wonderful because I didn't have a lot to go on for his early years during the depression. Yeah. And, and Lou shared, uh, so many stories and he was so, so, so excited that his brother was going to have a biography written about wow. his life and he shared, but, but he died, um, oh. about three months before the book was released, which was a very, a, just a terrible sadness because he was, he was his brother's biggest fan. So, oh, wow. yeah. So. But he has two other two other um, sisters uh, and and one I I spoke who lives in Florida I've spoken okay. to a lot about his about his life. Okay, were were they all younger? I'm trying to remember where he was in the lineup. Al Al was three. Okay, the two sisters were younger, okay. but his his brother was older. Okay, okay, wow. Um, and then you said you also got to meet some of the sisters that cared for him. Uh, you know, in his last few years. So what was that experience like? What did they, um, you know, what were their memories of him? They said he was a saint. Mm. Um, you would talk to them. Uh, you know, I, I talked to sister Margie on that first day I was down. We, we had about an hour together and she, she took care of him as he was dying um, of ALS. And as she spoke of him, she cried. It's almost like he died the day before. Wow. Um, the love the love that they still have really literally 30 years later, 19, uh, yeah, we're in 2002, 30 years later, um, is still raw. Um, he, he lived like a saint. He looked like a saint. His, his face shone like a, like a saint. He did things that saints do. Um, so, um, yeah, they, they, um, when they, when they speak of him, it's like they speak of uh, how they would speak of Jesus, or or how wow. they would speak of the blessed the the, the blessed Virgin. It, it, they 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 view him as uh, the saint that they know he'll soon be. Did you get to talk to any people who were like kids in the the girls' homes and boys' homes, like that knew him as as like the chaplain? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I would say maybe a half dozen to a dozen. I spoke that, um, so now they're what, 40, 50 years old. Oh yeah. They told me, they told me a lot of stories, how father Al would come in. Um, you know, he's kind of funny. He, yeah. he was an athlete. He ran seven to seven or eight miles every day, but he was also funny. Like he, he was very strict as far as, you know, um, Hey, look, you've, you've been brought into these boys towns and girls towns. You're, you're very fortunate. We expect a lot out of you, but uh, let me, let me do it. Let me show you a magic trick hmm. or let me tell you the latest joke or so he, he kept things light, yeah. um, but he also wanted them to be saints. Um, he, he, he emphasized the daily rosary. They played the day, prayed the daily rosary. He emphasized uh, weekday masses. They had weekday masses. Um, he spoke to them. He gave retreats to them all the time. He emphasized the needed the need for sanctity in their life, and most importantly, um, what he had really hoped that they could would do, and what he emphasized was that they would leave as graduates and catechize the world. Um, he used to tell them, "Nobody knows uh, the apparition of 
the version of the poor in Banau, Belgium. You are to tell the story by your lives. So, so he was very, he, he loved Mary in, in Belgium and, and how she presented herself. And he wanted that apparition to be, to be sort of shared with the world. Yeah. Do you know, where, where is he buried? The Philippines. Okay. Okay. Wow. I, I wonder if there's, um, has, has your book, like, has it, has it been translated into, I mean, I guess they speak English in the Philippines. I don't know. Has it been translated into like Korean or t- Tagalog or anything like that? It, so it's going to be, you know, okay. where, you know, where, you know, where it just got into last month, where, which I love what, what country I'm going to, so Mary Rose, a, a little <laughs> trivia here, Okay. <laughs> but your opinion, what country right now in the entire world most needs, um, uh, let's just say, uh, the true Catholic church shown to it. Think it, think about it. Think about it. Um, even in the last few days, some of the news that's popped out of the Vatican might give you the answer. That's the hint. But what country really needs uh, to learn about Father Al and the Catholic Church? I mean, when I think about the country that needs to hear the gospel the most, I think of China. Um, but Oh, well, all right. I'll tell you, Ger- Ger- Germany. Oh, okay, okay. So oh, because of all the craziness yeah, with their, sure. their German cinema. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, <laughs> They need the gospel rediscovered there. <laughs> yes, right, right. Yeah, they've re-engineered it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was just published in Germany. It'll be published in Spanish. and um, Okay, great, great. And it'll be in the Philippines, too. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, it would be really cool to go over there and see. I've, I heard that the largest, I don't think it's Catholic, but the largest Christian church in the world is actually in South Korea. Um, so it would be interesting to, to see just the ways that like Christianity and Catholicism have grown in that country, like, you know, since, since father Al's time. Well, it's, I'll, I'll tell you this, Mary Rose, as we speak, I believe there's 7,000 children in these boy and uh, there's two girls towns and there's two boys towns in the Philippines right now. So, so really they've been graduating from these authentically Catholic communities for the past. Let me think, shoot. 40, 45 years. So as they graduate, they're fully catechized. Mm. Um, These are, these are sort of, these are Lazaruses pulled from the tomb. They were very poor Mm. and they're brought in at, to these schools for five years where they come out as catechized light. You know, they're like bright hallelujahs of, of hope for the world. So, so the Philippines has literally had many tens of thousands of, of these graduates pour into throughout the entire country. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, so I, I'm curious because you mentioned you visited Chalco. So I was supposed to go there, well, next month, but, um, you know, Father Larry, of course, like with his surgery, we're going to postpone that um, that trip, hopefully with the college students in the spring. But um, when I was looking at things about Chalco, there's this really weird article that I think was published by like Vox or, or one of those type of publications about Chalco. Do you know what I'm talking about? Did you ever come across that article? It was about like yeah, the, I, the haunting of Chalco. <laughs> yeah, I did. That was a typical secular pagan who what he wanted to make it into a movie. Oh wow! Um, yeah, where apparently someone got sick years ago, and the sickness spread, and all these kind of crazy things happened, and somehow the demon got involved. And right. Um. 
So yeah, that was, I saw that and I, I reached out to the sisters. I'm like, have you seen this? Wow. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. They're always, they're always trying to attack us. I mean, there is, and, wow. and there, there's a real, there's a real element of Satan down there. So Father Dan Leary tells me because so many of these kids come into these communities having, I'll repeat, having been abused mm. in horrific demonic ways mm. by men and women, both they come in and some come in with oppressions. Mm. Some come in with, with very scary things. Um, so yes, some of that is brought in. It's, it's father Dan's and the sisters work to constantly work to remove these demons. So, so anyway, what'll happen is Vox or somebody will get hold of this, of all the sort of demonic warfare going on in this, in these communities and they'll try and take advantage of it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Reading the article is just like, you could tell that there was, it wasn't the whole story. Like there was other things going on. It just didn't really add up like from start to finish, but yeah, I would, I was curious what the people down there, if they, yeah, if they'd even seen it. Um, so so Father Dan, he's the chaplain there down at Chalco. Is he the sole priest who ministers to those thousands of kids? Well, believe it or not, for two years he was. Wow. Um, recently, uh, I, I would say within the last six months, a priest from Mexico now lives on campus who helps him. Mm -hmm. But but Father Dan, is he travels really throughout the world. Um so he can't just stay in Mexico. He, he he's off in Tanzania, wow. Africa. He's often way down in Brazil, um, and he tries to hit the circuit. So, so every three or so weeks, he'll travel to a different place just to because the kids are starving for the sacraments. So right. yeah, so he's he's really their 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 only full time chaplain. That I mean, that's almost hard to believe because so Father Al, like he founded the sisters, right? The Sisters of Mary. Yes. Um, but there just has never been a, a priestly side of that that ministry. Like he didn't found any like an order for men, I guess. No, he he tried to, but he got started too late. The sisters uh, really took off. Okay. So what happened was Father Al said we need sisters to mother these kids back to to health. Yeah. And I I think his his thought was one day the priest will come. Yeah. But but I'm going to be very candid with you now, Mary Rose. Um, it's very hard work. Mm -hmm. It's it's 17, 18 hour days every day because your confession line has 80 kids in it. Wow. Uh, you're, you're giving you're giving spiritual direction around the clock. You're celebrating two or three masses a day. Um, you're 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 always at it. And then you're also you're you're, you're with the kids praying. You're, you're, and, and as a priest, you need to, you need to spend time in prayer. Mm -hmm. So father Dan, um, he has no days off. It's, wow. it, there's no golf outings. There's no Rehoboth <laughs> beach. Right. It's, it's, it's three sixty five. So it's hard work. So he, he's the first one since father Al died 30 years ago to step in and say, yeah, I, I want to do it. Really? They had no interim chaplain. Nobody. Wow. Oh my gosh. So I guess they would just have to kind of pull from local priests, you know, whoever was available to offer mass for the girls and the boys. Exactly. So, so either, either, um, yeah. So it was beg, it was begging, stealing and borrowing just if they could get a priest to come in that day then, or that Sunday, that's what they would do. But until father Dan signed up two and a half years ago, that's what they had to do. Wow. 
was was reading your book or hearing about your research was that it, the inspiration for him or did he already know about Father Al? No, Father Dan had been serving um the sister actually this is a funny story mary rose you got you got time for a funny story yeah let's go <laughs> okay so father dan was a wild man back in college <laughs> an absolute wild man so i'm not betraying any confidence he wait, went to villanova wait, did you know him in college or i did not okay no thank goodness <laughs> um so he he um so after he graduated villanova he had a conversion um and he he joined the seminary in I believe 1980. Oh goodness, it doesn't matter. I would say no, but 1992, I think. Okay. Anyway, here's the story. So he was still like a stallion out of the barn, still acting like a crazy Villanova guy, and and he needed and it was his, it was the summer before he entered seminary, and the, the remember that couple we were talking about, Tom yeah. and Glory Sullivan. Yeah. So. So he called them up and said, Hey, Tom and Gloria, I need a summer job before I go off to seminary. You got anything? And, and they said, Oh my gosh, I tell you what, we've fallen in love with this new mission. Uh, well, not new, but this, this father Al Schwartz, and he has this girl's town that just opened in Chalco, Mexico. Why don't you go down there and serve the, the kids? And he's like, that sounds great. That sounds great. That sounds great. So, um, well, no, actually, I'm going to backtrack. So here, here's this is the funny part. So Mary Rose, so Tom and Glory put put Father Dan or back then Danny back to work at their company. So um, uh, this before Chalco. So so Father Dan in their company was acting like an absolute fraternity boy idiot. <laughs> He was hanging from the chandeliers while people were working and like kicking his legs up on the oh ceiling. My gosh. Oh yeah. Oh, Father Dan's a wild man. So he was cracking jokes. He was like giving guys wedgies, oh. you know, wet, wet willies in their ears. So, so Tom and glory said, Hey, listen, we're going to have to fire you because you're, you're distracting from our, from our employees, but here's what we're going to do. Instead, we're going to send you to girls town in Chalco, Mexico. Uh, because you're going to serve down there. So they sent him down there. And this is the wonderful part of the story, Mary Rose. Father Al had died only four months earlier. Wow. So when Father Dan arrived in Chalco, it was almost like Father Al's last breath sort of shot into, into, into Father Dan, into Danny as a seminarian. Mm. And he began to understand who Father Al was as a little little boy seminarian, 24 years old, mm -hmm. he he heard the sister's story. He saw them crying because the his death was still raw. Like yeah. they were still mourning yeah. his death. And and way, 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 way back then in 1992, this little boy, Danny Leary, said, I want to be a priest like Father Al. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. That that is actually I did not realize that he had a connection from that young of an age with, with father Al. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, this has been great. I, I've, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Um, yeah. Father Al is an absolute inspiration. Um, you know, certainly a model for, for all priests, but really I think a model for, for anybody who's a Catholic because he just lived that completely radical self-giving authentic life. Um, you, 
you called him Mary Rose. He was a radical. Yeah, he was a radical. I mean, Jesus was radical, you know. We're, we're called to be radical in, in the right way, um, you know. But anyway. Yeah, he was He was John the Baptist radical. Mm, that, I mean, that's he, it. He, yeah, that's it. Yeah. He was, he was radical in the way that the best radical saints in the history of the church were. He... He lived on a limb his entire life because he he wanted to serve Mary and he wanted to show the world the fullness of the gospel with no exceptions. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, are you are you working on a book right now? Anything new? <laughs> I am. But top secret. I am very, <laughs> yeah, it, for right now, it is top secret. Okay. But yeah, I am. It, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Please, please pray for me that, it, that I get this thing out of me. For sure. Is it going to be with Ignatius Press again? Uh, yeah, I think so. I okay. think it will be. Okay. They're, they are a great publication. And also this is completely like random, but I love the way they put this book together because it has these little flaps that you can like use as bookmarks. Isn't and, that great? Like, why did it take us so long? Like, how did we suffer through those like removable jackets for so long when they're just like, wait a second. I, I'm, with, I'm with you. <laughs> I'm with you. I loved it. Yeah. I love that little flap they put in there. Yeah. Awesome. So if people want to, uh, find you are you on social media are you on um blogs or anything like that is there a way they, they can keep in touch with you and your work yes they can go to well if they want to if they want i i really encourage them to pick up priest and beggar if they want to yeah, pick up a copy they can go to amazon or they can go to priest that's a really good site um as far as uh following where i'm giving talks or whatever uh kevinwells.org that's kevinwells.org um, and yeah, I think, I think that's, we can stop okay. right there. Okay. And if people want to support the, the sisters and father Dan and their work, do you know, uh, a place off the top of your head, they can, they can do that. Oh man. Yeah. I, I, I changed my tithe once <laughs> I discovered, yeah. you know, who they, I didn't, I didn't know who they were. Like, I didn't know anything about no, them. I never heard of them either. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now I know who they are and, um, so yeah, worldvillages.org backslash poverty, worldvillages.org backslash poverty. Um, I would I would really encourage your listener to at least go on uh, worldvillages.org just to see the uh, what the work they do. And, and last thing I'll say, Mary Rose, here's why I love World Villages and what the Sisters of Mary and what World Villages do is because not only are they um, bringing in the most vulnerable, the poorest of the poor, but I, I've come to believe, and I, and I really believe this, this is no shuck and jive, that they right now are the strongest force for providing Catholic missionaries in the world today. Because wow. every year, these 18 and 19-year-olds graduate from these boys' towns and girls' towns, and they go into universities and colleges or maybe workplaces, and they are uh, on fire with the Catholic faith. And just like Father Al and just like the sisters, they are bold and they are unafraid, and they do not bend their knee to the culture. They do not bend their knee to the world. They speak truth because they don't know any better. They just know that they were saved. Wow. They, li they lived in poverty. They were saved. So their thanksgiving is to show the world who Jesus Christ is. That's amazing. Wow. Praise God. Well, thank you again so much, Kevin, and best of luck with your next book. Thank you very much, Mary Rose. It's been great.